Do you know where your food comes from? Do you know how it's produced? Do you know if it's sustainable? Do you know if it's environmentally damaging? Do you believe farmers and food producers can improve their practices to save the environment? I really think that the industry is on a path of continuous improvement. And I think of the things that have changed since the 1990s and how the industry is doing much better with precision agriculture, with better genetics, better plant breeding, understanding the interaction between soil health, nitrogen availability and pH and all those kinds of things. I think the sector recognizes that, that this is an important piece and have been acting on it. Can we feed everyone and keep the price of food, good food, really good food, affordable? What role can vertical farming play in increasing yields? quality and at the same time reducing agriculture's environmental footprint. Organic food, non-GMO, sustainable farming, ethically raised animals, carbon, the environment, and of course, nutrition. We're uh, producing very sustainable uh, food and our focus is on baby leafy greens. We are using controlled environment agriculture. The greenhouse is a shell, so we're, we're using the greenhouse, but we have a warehouse inside and inside the warehouse, we have vertical farming. Uh, we actually designed this ourselves, so we're very proud of that. And it's uh, designed here in BC, it's Canadian technology. We are looking to implement it for ourselves, but uh, in the future, we are actually looking to export this agricultural technology. Full automated system, so from seeding all the way to harvesting, it's fully automated and touchless. We have um, seven skilled laborers, we have three management and ourselves. So about 12 people. We're going to be producing with our first phase about 450 tons per year. When we do expand within the same facility to 16 racks, we'll be able to do 850 tons a year. The actual facility itself is about an acre. We are able to produce 350 times more than traditional agriculture. Transport, the tilling that goes on, we have none of that. We use a lot of CO2 for our plants but that's just for recirculation, so we never release it into the air. So we get more food, better food, with much lower environmental impact. This is the future of farming. It doesn't matter if you subscribe to vegan, vegetarian, paleo, blood type, Mediterranean, or raw food diets, the food has to be produced. So what roles do genetic technologies, innovation, vertical farming, local farming, and reducing food waste have on production, cost, and saving the planet. Our garden can help folks who are experiencing food insecurity by supplementing produce within food box program. Our garden was created with a sheet mulch, so that means we do not do any digging. Uh, we didn't do any tilling to make the garden at all. And so this method of gardening um, helps to you know, keep the carbon in the ground, um, and keep the weed seeds in the ground and we just build on top of that. Um, and so it is a really good demonstration of how to do low impact um, agriculture. This past year we produced uh, over a thousand pounds, which is quite a lot for a small garden. Giving Garden model is, you know, just a small example of what you can do, you know, when you turn lawn into productive food garden. You know, these little models in our backyards are so great for food security, but um, the problems are very complex. And so we need to think in a, in a bigger scale of how do we lift people up, um, you know, who don't always have access to local food. 
Genomics can play an important role in defining the genetic basis or heritability of traits involved in carbon capture. Crop researchers examine genetic variability in plants like morphology, physiology, and biochemistry to understand the impacts of nutrient and water uptake and its conversion into biomass through root, shoot, and leaf growth. In British Columbia, Genome BC, an investment agriculture foundation of BC, together launched the Genomic Innovation for Regenerative Agriculture Food and Fisheries Program, while nationally, Genome Canada launched the Climate Smart Agriculture and Food Systems. Together, these two programs will invest in the development of genomic tools and approaches to address the twin challenge of increasing food production sustainably while mitigating the impacts of climate change. Do organic grains provide more nutrition? Are they more environmentally friendly? How are seeds produced? How do we increase food production per acre? Are there lessons to be learned from the Food in Space program? Because after all, there has to be something we can learn from them. Space exploration is is a profoundly powerful economic engine, especially for a country like Canada. We try and figure out what the nutritional composition of the plants are that will sustain human life indefinitely. We need proteins and carbohydrates, so uh, we need to expand the, the scope of commodities that we uh, produce. If we can develop reliable, robust sensors that can meet the technical challenge of reliably monitoring nutrient management solutions in a hydroponic system. That is the biggest technical black hole in controlled environment agriculture today. We have the technology in many respects. Uh, we're, we're going to get there with the nutrient systems. We're getting there rapidly. That's a good thing and it, it will continue to improve and it expands the scope of the technical solutions that we can bring to bear on high density food production. Is or can British Columbia be a leader in changing agriculture's environmental footprint? Climate smart agriculture really focuses on producing crops for export that are easy to transport. And of course, the prairies have a big advantage and they can produce lentils, send them dry on a boat. It takes a long time, but it doesn't matter. They arrive perfectly fine. When we look at the crops BC is best positioned to produce, we also, though, should be looking at exporting technology, and that's what the Netherlands has really doubled down on. They are the greenhouse capital of the world, but they don't export their greenhouse product to North America for the most part. What they export is their technology. Welcome to Conversations Live, Climate Smart Agriculture, Growing Better Food. Tonight, we come to you from the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations, who have lived on and continue to call these lands home. According to Torfi Johannesson, the department head of working for a sustainable and integrated Nordic region, by 2030, we will need close to 50% more food than today, 45% more energy, and 30% more water. Tonight, our objective is to examine ways that genetics, technology, a rethinking of agricultural practices, what are we learning about growing food in space and growing food in community gardens, and how can those endeavors offer to grow better food, increase food security, and grow more, and improve agriculture's environmental footprint, 
which by the way is significant. So let me start by saying this evening is not about pointing fingers at food producers. Rather, we are examining ways that will, as stated in the future of BC's food system report, it says, we believe that with the right strategic initiatives, British Columbia can and will be a world leader in food production and strategic initiatives. The province is well positioned to take that lead thanks to a booming technology sector. As well, we have a strong agricultural brand that is respected everywhere as high quality, safe, and environmentally sound. And let's not forget, our ports are a gateway to sharing our food with the world. But we also have a secret weapon, a half-century dedication to prioritizing agriculture through land protection and stewardship. And we have an impressive panel tonight. They are Frederica Di Palma, the Chief Scientific Officer and VP Research and Innovation at Genome BC. Peter Dillon, Chair Ocean Spray, the Rich Berry Group, and the Chair of the BC Food Security Task Force. Philip Steenkamp, President of Royal Roads University. Karn Monhaus, Chair Terramara. Baram Rashti, the co-founder and CEO of Fresh Green Farms and Up Vertical Farms. And joining us virtually from the University of Guelph, Evan Fraser, the director of the Errol Food Institute and a lead member of Food from Thought Research Initiative. As well, chief editor of the Vancouver Sun, Harold Monroe, joins me tonight to hurdle some questions at our panel. And now... Just before we begin, I'm going to express my wholehearted gratitude to our sponsors who make this evening possible. Our presenting sponsors are Genome BC and Genome Canada. Our event sponsors are Stem Cell Technologies, Fortis BC, Landlord BC, Polygon, BD Development, The Port of Vancouver, Research Co., and of course our media partner, is the Vancouver Sun. Our supporters are the Surrey Board of Trade and Canadian Beef. And I want to especially thank Applegee Public Relations and give a big shout out to the crew at Oh Boy Productions who are experts in live online and virtual event production as well as live video press conferences. Now, one last thing for viewers online. You will see a Slido dialog box on your screen. Please feel free to post a question. Sean, our Slido master, will be receiving your questions and bringing them forward to us. And I will, while I may not use your question directly, I'll use many of them to inform me about topics and questions to bring forward to the panel. Now, to set the stage, here is Mario Canseco, a research co who conducted a poll about our impressions of food production in BC. Amy, can you play that video, please? British Columbians are keenly aware of the challenges that climate change has bestowed upon several industries. Almost two-thirds of BC residents are aware of the actions that the agriculture sector has taken to reduce its environmental footprint, a higher number than what is observed for other industries such as forestry, natural gas, and mining. In the last few years, BC has experienced severe weather and forest fires. At the start of this century, it was customary for BC residents to think about climate change as an issue that would negatively impact the global food supply, but that would have little influence on Canada. The situation has changed dramatically, 
with three in four BC residents knowing that climate change is a threat to our own food supply, a level of concern that is slightly lower than what is currently observed for both our country and the world. BC residents have become more demanding when they go out shopping. In our survey, at least one in four say they are looking at labels frequently to see if the food they buy is organic and free from genetically modified organisms. Three in 10 are also actively trying to figure out the origin of the food they buy at the supermarket. As customers get more acquainted with the groceries they buy, some are willing to pay more for food that meets certain characteristics. Almost two in five BC residents are willing to pay at least 6% more for food that is local, while about one in four would also pay more for food that has no genetically modified organisms. At this stage, just over three in 10 BC residents are willing to spend more if their groceries are certifiably organic or come from a company that has implemented policies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchGo. Now I have one last video that I wanna play, it's short, but it helps us set the stage uh, so that we understand partly the scale of what it is that we're trying to do. This from Dr. Frank Mitlerner of UC Davis. Amy, can you please play that video? Imagine this sheet yeah. of paper here being the entire surface of the Earth. That's all of it, 100%. Now, um, I fold this sheet of paper, and I will fold it twice until it's roughly the same size as a postcard. What you see now is roughly uh, the total amount of land in the world. The rest is water and ice. That's all land in the world. Now, this year is my business card. And the equivalent amount of my business card is all agricultural land. So this here is all land. This is all agricultural land. And if we now take this agricultural land and we fold it into one piece that's one third and the other two third, and then rip this business card into pieces, then we have a agricultural land mass that's two thirds marginal land. And marginal means here you cannot grow crops because either the soil is not of good enough quality or there's not enough water. Um, that land is referred to as marginal land. Okay, so two thirds of all agricultural land in the world, but also here in North America, is marginal, cannot be used to grow crops. So what do we do with that land? We graze ruminant livestock there. And why? Because they can make use of cellulose-rich feeds. Cellulose is a carbohydrate. They're the only ones that can digest that. Humans and monogastric animals like pigs and poultry cannot. So two-thirds of all agricultural land are marginal, can only be utilized by ruminant livestock. The remaining one-third of my business card is what's called arable land. Here you can grow crops for humans and animals. So that's how limited we are with respect to total land in the world that can be used to grow food for people. And I want to bring one more nuance to this. This one third of my business card, the arable land, has to be fertilized. Half of that arable land is fertilized with chemical fertilizers, and the other half is fertilized with organic fertilizers, which almost without exception stem from animal manure. Now to our panel. That helps to set the stage. We have a big task ahead of us tonight, and when I say us, I mean everyone who has a connection to the production of food and, and also the consumption of food. Now, Peter, I just want to give you a, a heads up that I'm going to come to you 
last on this first question because of your role as chair of the future of the food report, which speaks to many aspects of climate smart agriculture, but it also covers topics that can add to our discussion tonight. So Frederica, I'd like to start with you. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you and then all other panelists the same question. As stated in the food report, can BC and by extension Canada lead the next agricultural revolution? one that is climate smart, and I'm assuming that you're going to say yes. How are we going to do that? Thank you for the question, and thank you for the invitation on this panel. You asked me if they can, and yes, they can. <laughs> that doesn't mean they will <laughs> or would, uh, but yes, it's absolutely possible. I think... Uh, um, BC, um, as you have already in your introduction illustrated, has a number of of the, a number of components here uh, that are extremely uh, strong in in the ecosystem for this um, to happen. There's the the technology. Um, there's the environment that is extremely resourceful. There's a lot of water. There's a a, a lot of good agricultural land, um, and, and so and. And, and, and an incredible amount of uh, innovation that is that is uh, bubbling up in in the ecosystem. Um, I think one of the things perhaps that will allow the switch or accelerate the switch uh, would be to think about uh, this in a more holistic way than we have done in the past, and perhaps referring also to the you know the Ministry of Agriculture and Food Strategic Framework that they've just released in 2022 in BC, uh, with a focus on rege regenerative agriculture. Regenerative agriculture is this holistic way of thinking about agriculture, where we yes we we push the innovation. Yes, we push the uh, increase in economic profitability and in productivity, but we do so with an environmental stewardship in mind, with a social responsibility, um, and using uh, responsibly indigenous resources and indigenous agriculture. So if all of these pieces come together, I think this is possible. But genomics are going to play an important role in that. It's the technology. It's the innovation. Absolutely. Karen. From your perspective, because you've already said, no, I'm going, to, I'm going out there and I'm going to already start to make this happen. Tell us where we are and what do we need to keep pushing towards to make sure that we do take a lead. Thanks, Stu. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. We, we absolutely have an ability to be a world leader here. Actually, you know, Vancouver and BC already hit above its, um, you know, our weight class in terms of agriculture and, and agricultural technology. I think 13 years ago when Terramara started, people would have laughed if they, you would have said that, uh, you know, Vancouver would be a, a, a global agrotech leader. And now when you look at the number of of you know, quite significant agricultural products, uh, agricultural companies and technology companies focused on this area here. Um, I think a, a, a huge part of this is, you know, being on the West Coast here a, a lot. Uh, you know, I, I think people have been, and especially in, in entrepreneurship, um, there's been a lot bigger focus on trying to figure out how we can bend the curve of economics and climate and environment so that we can actually bend the curve of, of, of profit and economics to, to align with, uh, with, with uh, environmental and climate benefit. And so these are hard problems to be able to solve. Um, and, and BC is a leader in, in, in clean technology and, and agriculture is a real 
major part of the solution that we have to be able to, to, to get aligned if we're going to actually solve these climate issues. I would say it's the most important. Um, so, you know, I think um, a, a few things are happening here. One is, uh, you know, a, a social change with people looking to see uh, and, and consumer demand looking uh, at different types of products. Or, organic uh, has was long uh, uh, been been one of the movements, but you see how much is is going on in terms of labeling and the fight around labeling. Um, but but it's going more more than just or, organic now. People are looking at um, you know nutrition. They're looking at climate effects. There's, there's increasing conversations around you know um, soil health, um, um, you know car carbon footprint, regenerative. Um, regenerative agriculture, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, is, I think, going to change, is, is the most important revolution in agriculture that the world will see. Um, it is as big or bigger than the Green Revolution. You can call it regenerative, you can call it soil health, you can call it whatever you want. Um, but I would say if, if farmers do not, if, if, if we do not start switching to regenerative agriculture, um, it will, uh, those that don't switch are going to be left behind economically. Um, and it's not just the social pressures of, of, of change. So there's, there's cultural changes, there's, there's generational changes with farmers, there's uh, economic changes in terms of supply chain, costs of things like synthetic fertilizer are so expensive that traditional farming just isn't profitable to the same level that, that it was. And, and climate change in terms of, of being able to not only uh, mitigate climate change, but adapt to climate change. Um, so soil health is the key part to that. That's something that I think, you know, a, a number of jurisdictions in particular, you know, in, in BC, the BC government uh, launched Regen BC. It's a, you know, this is an opportunity to really take some leadership, but it will take a lot of, you know, uh, effort focused investment. BC doesn't have a lot of land holdings, but it, it is at the forefront of wanting to try some different things. And that's, I think, probably the greatest opportunity is, is this wealth of technology in technology companies and clean tech companies in Canada, and this opportunity to utilize um, a, a first mover effect on uh, regenerative and and start showing the economic value, not just the climate and the carbon footprint value, but the economic value of regenerative agriculture. And third, I would say is the um, is the opportunity to potentially, and this hasn't been talked a lot about, but the opportunity to leverage, to, you know, marginal lands or unused lands, as well as all lands in the agricultural land reserve. Um, we're not using the the a lot of the lands that we have in, 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 in the land reserve. And so how do we, we, we actually take that asset and turn that into something that allows us to be a world leader? Evan, I see you nodding there. Um, and you're, you know, in Ontario. Uh, thanks for joining, uh, joining us. It's much later at night for you, but I appreciate you joining us because so much of what is happening uh, at the University of Guelph, you've created this, um, you know, center of, you know, food production excellence and research. Are we uh, in British Columbia, do we need to say, yes, we can take a lead here, but we also need to recognize that we're part of a national program or a national network? 
So I think this is a wonderful question, and I think this is a brilliant conversation, and I firmly believe that uh, we actually face a generational challenge, but also a generational opportunity here. And, and the previous speakers, Karen and whatnot, have have Franca have said have said have articulated that. Um, I'll put it this way. Uh, the farmers on the planet over the next generation will have to produce more food than all farmers ever have cumulatively in all of farming history. That's the scale of the challenge. And the scale of the opportunity is that the same technologies that created the internet, the same technologies that gave us uh, what seven vaccines within 18 months of a new virus emerging, those same technologies can change how we produce food. But let's not make any mistake, with the challenge and the opportunity of the scale uh, comes a bewildering, uh, a bewildering moment where we have to think of this order of magnitude that we need to be working on. And I, I think the only real appropriate analogy here is a war footing scale. So let's just take a really trivial example of lettuce. I mean, we've had trouble in Canada, we've had trouble in British Columbia maintaining our supply of lettuce over the last year, largely because we depend on California for our lettuce. 250,000 tons of lettuce comes into Canada every year, most of which comes from California. Well, if we wanted to replace that with vertical farming, we would need to build something like 250 vertical farms, each of which cost $25 million, each of which need a place to grow, each of which need about 50 people to work on them. That's 10,000 employees uh, and $6 billion of investment just to get on top of our lettuce supply. So while the opportunity is enormous and the challenge is great, we have to be thinking on such a huge scale of ambition, a war footing scale of ambition. Uh, so I don't think we have a choice to, but to say yes, because, because the world is changing around us. And if we don't say yes, we will be harming our food security, we'll be harming our national security, we'll be harming our health and our nutrition. Um, so we have to say yes, we have to step up to this challenge, but let's not make any mistake. This is this is a generational challenge, uh, but within that generational challenge is this huge opportunity. And, and I think a place like British Columbia, a country like Canada, that has the uh, the stable regulatory environment, the, um, the good workforce, uh, a good quality infrastructure, good ports, such as the ones you're sitting right next to out there. Um, you know, Canada has every opportunity to, um, to, to play a global leadership role on this. And, uh, and I, I really think that um, trying to help us realize that global leadership role is something that I'm, I'm going to direct the rest of my career towards. Uh, uh, don't, don't know of anybody in Bales, but it's something that I'm burning up with fire about. Well, I'm the perfect lead into you because, of course, you said, yes, we recognize that challenge. And you have just uh, started production on BC's first vertical farm. Uh, tell us what you're doing, uh, what led you to this, and where you believe that we can go from here. Thank you very much, Stu, and, and uh, to piggyback on what Evan was saying, we do have that ambition, luckily, so we have started this project. And uh, just like you said, we just went live this week and have our products on the shelves. So to answer the original question, we do believe BC can lead the agricultural revolution, and, and we have stepped up to actually lead that in our sector and show that we can. And just to put it in perspective, we produce a tremendous amount of baby leafy greens, enough to cover the West Coast and the Pacific Northwest as well in regards to supply to the market. And um, what we do at Up Vertical Farms is we design, build, and operate commercial-scale, high-density vertical farms for baby leafy greens. And we've decentralized the model that the panelists were talking about where we, they supply <clears throat> and distribute from a central location such as California and Arizona. We intend to build these all across Canada and eventually the U.S. where we feed a specific region one to multiple states and provinces, like I mentioned, and that cuts out the transport costs and a lot of different carbon footprints that come with it. But uh, just to add on to the, some of the numbers uh, Evan was saying, 
we grow with one acre what you would with in with 350 acres worth of conventional farmland. So it's extremely efficient. We've designed it to be extremely efficient and cost effective. And our products are actually priced to uh, compete and replace the field grown supply coming in. And so the same price as well. That was always the intent. So with that in mind, we can feed BCM beyond. We have to feed BCM beyond. Other companies like us need to step up and build these facilities. Vertical farming is going to be not just a supplement to conventional farming as it is now. It's going to be a necessity to hit some of the numbers that, that Evan was saying in regards to the demand. So we put ourselves in this position to be here right now. A lot of people think it's luck, which, uh, which as Peter said, it's good to be lucky than good. Um, we knew many years ago, it's almost a decade now, that we've been working on this project. And we took our time to make sure that when we do hit the market, we can supply consistently and reliably food that is clean and that is good. And we streamlined our operations to be able to automate the seeding line, the harvest line, and the packing line to continuously provide that affordable food to the mass markets. And we aligned ourselves with some of the, the giants in the industry, such as OPI and, and Dole PLC, to be able to get that retail input, not just to come up with a product later to the BC market and beyond and say, well, we have this, can you please buy it? We've perfected our ecosystem and our actual uh, production facility to be able to produce what the market wanted in advance. So now we're saying we produce what you required and it's local, it's pesticide and herbicide and fungicide free, it's touchless, nobody touches the product, and it's reliable all year round, and it's affordable, it's the same price as I mentioned. So as a result, not only is it possible, we are actually doing it at Up Vertical Farms. Well, I'm happy that you're doing it and you're doing it on scale because as we've seen getting a product out of California and Southern United States becomes more and more difficult. But uh, we also play a role individually and in communities. And this is where, you know, Philip, you and uh, the team at Royal Roads come in into the equation. What is it that you're doing that we as individuals can learn from or as collectives in, in neighborhoods that can help us to reduce the environmental footprint of, the, of food production and ensure food security? Well, thank you for the question. And um, I was a little intimidated by Evan's comment about the scale we need, <laughs> given the scale I'm working at. But I do think uh, we have to work at all scales. We have to work at the individual scale, the household scale, local, regional, national, and international. And um, at Royal Roads University, um, you know, we situated at uh, Hatley Park, the southern part of Vancouver Island, it used to be the Dunsmere Estate. It used to be a fully functioning working farm. When I started there as president four years ago, I was wandering around and I was wondering why we were not growing food. I mean, this was a farm after all. Uh, and then I also learned about the indigenous history there. And that site was called Tichamista, which meant gathering place. And indigenous communities from all over the region would gather there to gather food, both, of course, the food in the lagoon, but also the food on the land. So it's always been an important uh, site of food production. So we started at Rural Roads to think about how we might make this contribution to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, particularly Goal 2, which is zero hunger. And uh, the first thing we decided to do was to bring food production back at Rural Roads. And so we started a project um, in the old Edwardian kitchen garden, which we reimagined as a world garden. And the first 
garden we planted there, we called the Giving Garden. And the Giving Garden uh, produces fresh uh, fruit and vegetables, which we supply to community organizations. Last year, to single mothers, food insecure single mothers, uh, seniors, and also to new Canadians. Small scale initially, 1,000 pounds last year. This year, we're looking at producing about 250 pounds a week, which is going into the system there. And then over time, we are going to expand that garden. The importance of this is to, I think, is just to get people used to the idea of making a contribution. You can make a contribution and you can do it anywhere. We've got about five acres in the kitchen garden, but we're thinking now about the entire university as an edible landscape. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've engaged faculty and students and community in this exercise to reimagine that land. Uh, and to engage with our community. And we will build this into our programming as well. So we want to increase awareness of food and food security. We're working very closely with indigenous communities as well. We have an indigenous ethnobotanist, Ken Elliott, who's working with us and advising us. Uh, and the next garden we are building this year is an indigenous food and medicine garden. So you, you need to work at all scales on this. And I think it just raises awareness, it raises consciousness, and it makes a contribution. And interestingly enough, the new mayor of Colwood is very interested in vertical gardens. I know, and, and I know he's, he's very interested in, in, in your vertical garden as well, your vertical farm. Um, so within the region, I think we're going to see this happen at all different scales. Peter. So, um, the the really nice thing about being last is you can say everything they said. <laughs> and. and. <laughs> All right. So, you know, um, can be C, be a leader. Um, I got to give some uh, or a lot of credit to Premier John Horgan at the time. Um, I, I sat with him and we, we started talking about food security and how important uh, this issue would be. This was a conversation in 2018. Um, and... Um, you know, farmers knew this already, that production was dropping. And they couldn't understand and figure out why, why production would be dropping year after year. And, um, and I remember talking to then Premier John Horgan, and they would just start talking about, uh, you know, well, what's going to happen? Because, listen, I mean, we're at 8 billion people on our way to 9 billion people. How the heck are we going to feed everybody? And I think you know some of the people ahead of me had really pointed out that this is going to be a significant problem, the amount of food that has to be produced. So we went on our way uh, and uh, started doing this food security uh, report and you know identified areas in the world that were really leading cutting edge, like the Netherlands, uh, Singapore. We start trying to say, okay, well, what can we do? And uh, you know, uh, at that time, Premier Horgan always felt that we could be the Netherlands, you know, of of uh, of uh, the Americas. And uh, do I believe we can? I believe we certainly can. So we had our report um, in 2019 and 2020, just before the pandemic. Here was here was the the report was delivered to the, to the BC government, and. Um, and, you know, as we were trying to look at the report, we, you know, realized that production was one part of what we thought food security was. And, you know, um, farmers will tell you the amount of waste 
that occurs on the farm because they just can't get their product to uh, to manufacturing. And one of the things we identified was that we had um, insufficient manufacturing of food products. And you know, as we look at climate change and solving some of the um, issues around weather, why is it that we're driving food a thousand miles to get processed and then driving it back to consume? And how much are we wasting along that, you know, along that time as well? So, so we, we saw that. And I mean, as everybody feels it now, we've uh, in the pandemic and uh, we, the supply chain, food inflation. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we had said about a year or two ago was the cost of food isn't coming down anytime soon. And, uh, you know, that's because there is such a demand, a shortage. We're seeing production dropping. And I can tell you, the, the two gentlemen here to my right, you know, it's not one or the other. It's both. It's actually both of these guys are going to solve um, what I think is some of the things that we need to do and how we look at food production uh, going forward. But we also have to actually think about the consumer at the end. How do we get food to the consumer in the most efficient way, get it to the shelf? That's where almost 100 percent of people buy their food on a shelf. So what is the impediment to us increasing uh, that kind of food production in BC? Um, you know, do we, we have underutilized agricultural land reserve lands. Can we not bring that production in and hmm. give them an advantage sure. that they wouldn't be able to have if they were operating on industrial lands yeah. or elsewhere? Yeah, Card raised that, but I, th I think there's an underlying issue here. Why do we have such unused agricultural land? The cost of sending it away, as opposed to manufacturing it here, is tremendous. It's not economical for, for growers. Blue, blueberry farmers are having to send their fruit across the line and then bring it back again, right? So um, it, th there, is, there is a higher cost when there is no uh, manufacturing or processing, we'll call it processing here. And so one of the things that we realized is that there was a shortage of processing. But, um, um, but, but, but yeah, I mean, that, that's one part. And I, and I think on the, um, on the vertical, the other thing we realized is that, you know, you, you, you ask a really important question, but we live in Canada where, you know, in many provinces, winter is like six months of the year. So we're kind of not able to grow for the other six. So we rely on other jurisdictions. And, you know, I was at a conference of, um, of, of uh, a lot of farmer cooperatives, and they had the Secretary of Agriculture speak to it. And today, I mean, everyone is realizing food security is national security now because of uh, the shortage of food. And there are a lot of movers now um, a lot of these farmer cooperatives, a lot of these food companies have realized that uh, production is dropping and are prepared to invest. And today are investing billions of dollars trying to figure it out on how to get production of food up. And, you know, I think one of the things that these two are doing, which I think is really important, we talk about moving food to places. What we should be moving is the technology, because I think we're coming to a point in time where it's really local, local, local. Grow local, process local, feed local. Because we have supply chain, we have climate change, and we have pricing of food. And I start, you know, we, we, start, we have to start thinking about how we can drive a, kind of a local uh, economy here. So 
question. Hands up everywhere. Baran. <laughs> and then I'll come to you, Karn. Thanks, Stu. Uh, just to add a bit more insight as to, to what Peter was saying in regards to figures, uh, when we say we feed BC and beyond, we produce up to 850 tons annually in, in our facility, in the one-acre facility of baby leafy greens. So BC's consumption, based on uh, Nielsen reports and Nielsen data, the full consumption of baby leafy greens is 750 tons, whether it's in retail or food service, et cetera. And so we're entering the market with nine racks out of the 16 that is built for, entering in with 450 tons of annual production of baby leafy greens, and then we ramp up to 850. That's a tremendous amount of baby leafy greens, and, and you will never get the whole market of BC, but as a result, we intend to feed all of West, uh, Western Canada, and we are actually on shelves in April across Western Canada, starting BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, all the way to Manitoba. So we are doing it on a commercial scale, but just to add to some of the numbers uh, Peter was saying, we do it in an extremely sustainable fashion. We do use 99% less fr fresh water, 99% less agricultural land that you're referring to, 99% less fertilizers. We recycle and, and reuse all of it. So just because we have fresh water and agricultural land, what we're allowing to do is save it for other farmers, whether it's regenerative or otherwise, or future generations to use. And we just use a fraction of that for the production capabilities that we have, allocating the rest for other farming to take place as well. So uh, I'm just going to go to Evan first. Evan, I see your hand up there. Thank you. I'm not quite sure how to get your attention, but I was successful, obviously. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I really want to just jump into the point that Peter made about the loss of the processing sector. So I, I did my PhD at UBC 25 years ago, and I remember interviewing a farmer in, the, in Delta who described how his career as a farmer had sort of been losing processing markets. So he'd produced potatoes for a potato chip company, but the potato chip company had closed. And then he produced strawberries for a strawberry freezing facility, and that had closed. And he just sort of sort of gone one after another after another until he'd sort of lost all, all sort of crops and was sort of thinking of what on earth to do with his land. So this is something that's been systemic across Canada. And one of the consequences of the original North American Free Trade Agreement, like way back in the 90s, was that the North American food processing and especially our vegetable processing sector really moved south to California and places like that. And the Canadian farmers have been absolutely at a loss for accessing markets. So if we want to build back our food sovereignty, we want to build back our ability to process food. And processing is really important because it, it extends shelf life. Um, I mean, we think of food processing as bad, but you think of freezing a strawberry or turning a strawberry into jam then you extend the shelf life, you reduce waste, you add value, and you capture all that locally. So we need desperately to be thinking critically about how to rebuild our processing capacity if we want to achieve any of the sort of things that we're, um, we're asper aspirational about on this conversation. All right, thanks. Over back. Karn? <laughs> Um, and uh, first of all, I, I just want to support what, what Peter and I uh, build on what Peter and Evan are saying. This is out of my area because we're not in the processing. But just from the farmers that we're working working with, one of the, the key things that we have seen is just the lack of modern infrastructure and in inv in investment in, in, in agriculture here in BC. Um, Peter brought up um, the Netherlands. The Netherlands is such an interesting example because, I mean, here's a country you can drive around in one day. It's, you know, it's, it's smaller than... Vancouver, you know, Vancouver Island. I mean, it's, um, you, ha you have a very small population, a very small country with a limited amount of land. And if you look at the economic productivity that you get, they get out of every acre of agricultural land, it's, it's on the order of 250 to 300 times more um, uh, agricultural dollar value um, per acre than British Columbia. And so, 
how do they do that? Now, there's, there's not, it's not an exact co comparison, but one, some of the macro factors that you can, can look at is they have a limited amount of land and they've looked at that as a resource and combined their interest in food security because, you know, it's a, it, you know, they're, they're, they actually built their land really, <laughs> um, like literally from the ground up, but, it, but also these advances in technology. So it's a country that's really invested a lot in technology and fused agriculture with technology. When you go there, you see, uh, uh, you know, machine learning and AI-based um, um, grading technologies. You see, you know, AI-based um, uh, uh, insights on 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 how they actually manage their their, their land. And so, how do you know? How do we? Well, BC is a, a very similar example with a limited amount of land, but a high degree of technological innovation. So, how do we start learning from that to start getting that adoption? You know, uh, uh, production uh, or processing isn't our isn't uh, our, 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 our scope of area, but it is an example. That, for example, there's a regenerative farm. Um, uh, on the Sunshine Coast where I live um, uh, called Persephone. Um, and, uh, and Brian Smith, who runs it, he wanted to actually start saying, okay, how do we start utilizing ALR land and have, have um, uh, value-added production here? So actually started growing hops and barley on the land and then realized there's no, there's no production. There's, they actually, they don't have the facilities and it's half a million dollars, but half a million dollars to a small business is a lot of money. So they have to send it all the way out to the to the Okanagan um, and, and ship it back to be able to actually use the stuff. It, it became, it's it's not even valuable anymore to even farm the land locally to produce to 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 produce the the crops that go into the beer farms. So like how do we these aren't they aren't large amounts of dollars. The same thing with regenerative agriculture. It's you know like it's it's small amounts of tools and infrastructure that 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 farmers need to start being able to understand, hey, what what is the what is the quality of our soil and what what do we actually need to do to start increasing the quality and, and health of the soil so we can decrease the amount of fertilizers we need and increase the amount of production. So how do we get those technologies? These are some of the technologies we're working on right now. It costs dollars per acre, a few dollars per acre. So how do we start bridging this really Canadian problem of we've got markets here and we've got technologies here and how do we start bringing our technologies into our own markets so we have the actual the, the global leadership rather than shipping it to the rest of the world okay you're asking that question where's the answer Beer? so <laughs> or yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there are certain things. I mean, th this requires both cultural and policy things. So, for example, Canada um, has has really invested a lot in R&D. So we're really good at, at R&D to a certain level. We're not really good at growing that to commercial levels. We're good at growing small businesses. But how do we grow small businesses to medium businesses and large businesses? So, you know, some interesting ideas have, have been put forward to say, for example, instead of um, you know, how do we incent um, the industry to de-risk their use of new technology? Because that's that's one of the key things here in Canada, right? We are we're 
we're a little more conservative than our southern neighbors and a little more conservative to start ad adopting new technologies. And the, the, the key thing for a farmer is, hey, this is my whole livelihood. My profit may be going down right now because fertilizer is more expensive, the processes, labor is getting more expensive, but at least I know this. So if I'm going to take a new technology and start implementing it, what's the risk to me? And so one of the, you know, the key things that we can, we, I think we need to start looking at is how do we start underwriting some of that, the adoption risk of technologies for our local, for, for local growers? So are there credits, just like we have R&D credits, Terramera gets a bunch of R&D credits. Why not, how about farmer credits or producer credits for adopting that new technology? So you, you start underwriting some of the risk of new technologies. So... You know, we have Genome BC here in BC that helps uh, with a bunch of that research, and they do help to establish that there is value in this. Federica, you know, to Karn's point, you know, how do we help uh, food producers move beyond some of those risky decisions? Yeah, so um, so let's talk a little bit about the, the genomic technology. I think... Uh, all of the panelists here have done a fabulous job to identify how to really sort of describe how complex this is and how many pieces have to come together. It's not just genomic technology, but I think the genomic technology has the potential to really accelerate all of that we've talked about. Um, not so much the processing, but much more upstream. <laughs> and, and so there are different areas in which genomic technology has played a leading role, and uh, that is the improved varieties of any sort of crop or varieties of um, foods, and improved varieties that means improved to higher tolerance to climate, salinity, uh, environmental stresses. Uh, um, we have the ability to look at the genomic makeup uh, and understand which genes are important that confer these uh, traits that are improved. We can uh, and, and we can breed for these specific uh, improved varieties. We can also look at the climate pressures that people, you know, have been mentioning and through, you know, through the genomic makeup, we can ensure that we can create varieties that can adapt, uh, foods that can adapt and uh, can mitigate as well uh, the, the issues with the carbon emissions. And we talked a little bit about, about that. And also the improved use of eff the efficiency of the nutrients. So in the same way. Um, and and, but there, that's not the only technology, and Terra Mera has also dem demonstrated that. Um, and of course, we have the, the waste. We, we talked a lot about the waste, and so, you know, microbial genomics and uh, is helping us uh, in ways like this. So, this is sort of the way that genomics is helping accelerate. The other thing that is really important, and I think BC has also a very much uh, a strength, is, is, um, is also protecting from a surveillance diagnostic point of view comes into the country and also what gets exported in terms of of, of uh, viral, uh, in terms of diseases, contaminations with, with diseases. And so genomics has the switch to very old molecular ways so to new sequencing technology has allowed to do this much, much faster and has put us in a much better position to export our foods and also to check when we import our foods. So this is a sort of... Um, 
Um, but I think there is an issue, uh, I see laughing and nodding, but I think there is an issue um, with the, the risking. I mean, we certainly see, I mean, I see certainly uh, that there is a, uh, perhaps a little bit more of, uh, the industry is a bit more uh, conservative in adopting some of this new technology. And, uh, and so it's, uh, uh, how there are different incentives that I think that the province could give to to allow uh, you know this this uptake of technology for economic benefit. I'm going to turn over to Harold uh, right at the moment. Uh, Harold Monroe from Vancouver Sun. You have a question for the panelists. Oh yes, thank you. Very interesting so far. There was a mention earlier of, of labor, and I am interested in that perspective as well, perhaps for, for uh, or I guess, two different angles here. One, we hear every summer uh, about a shortage for labor in the Valley, for pickers and the Okanagan for, for pickers as well. Um, if we're going to ramp up production, where's, where are we going to get the workforce to support the industry? And then you talk about vertical farming and new technology. Do we have the programs in our universities and college to train the next generation of farmers who need to know about these things. Peter. Yeah, no, I, uh, thanks for the question. I love the question. Uh, you're absolutely right on the first part. Are, are we um, short on labor, farm labor? Absolutely. I would even go as far as saying if we didn't have the foreign worker program, we would not have many farms left in British Columbia or for the uh, rest of Canada. Um, young people just don't want to go to conventional uh, farming. They just don't. And it is so critical. Every year we get less and less people that are interested. If we, um, and and, uh, and it, the, the, just the process of getting people here is now starting to become a little easier. But to your point, um, British Columbians, Canadians don't want to do it. Now, what's being done on the technology side, it's actually a really different mindset. Let me share a story with you. In 2019, I was in New York City at an ag tech conference. And it was about 350 young people kind of like, well, even younger than Karn as well. I mean, very young. And, uh, and, and I was standing in the room and, you know, one of the, one of the older people there. And I'm looking at this 350 and I go, what do you guys do? They go, oh, well, we're, we're farmers. You're farmers. Well, where are your farms? They go, oh, you know, like, uh, you know, on the rooftop here or in a container over there. And that was my aha moment was, it's not that young people don't want to grow food. They're just redefining farming. I think we think farming as a field, a tractor, and a farmer. And they think, no, farming is actually in a room, you know, moving this button, using these controls, have a white lab coat on, and growing food production. And I walked away probably the most inspired I ever was that, you know what? Young people are not uh, disengaged from growing food. They just don't want to do it in the conventional sense. But I think businesses like this are going to re-engage young people to come back and grow food. So when we grow food that way, are we addressing some of our environmental and climate issues because we're taking that transportation out, we're yeah. keeping it local? Uh, you know, Philip, I know that you, you want to jump in on this topic too. Yeah, thank you. and. Um, I noticed that we've got the Dean of, Ag of Food and Land Systems from UBC in the audience tonight. So I want to do a shout out to UBC, University of the Fraser Valley and others who are indeed doing some excellent work in these areas. And I think are preparing 
uh, the workforce of the future, both in terms of high tech, but also in terms of the kind of local engagements I've been talking about too. And to follow on your point, um, I see a lot of interest in young people. Uh, the the woman we hired to do set up our food system at Royal Roads University owns her own company called Edible Landscapes. She's in her 20s. And she is building edible landscapes all across the city in Victoria and in, in surrounding communities. So there's a ton of interest there. Uh, I think for the foreseeable future, though, uh, Canada will rely on um, foreign farm workers. That's inevitable. I mean, we've seen a significant increase uh, in immigration numbers uh, just this year. But I do think we need to do more work to encourage interest. And that's why the example I gave you of what we do in at Royal Roads engages the community. We get volunteers in. We're working with Pearson College. We're bringing students in from Pearson as well. So we are trying to spark that interest in agriculture, whatever form, and in food production, whatever form that takes. Thanks, Stu. Uh, there's a couple of points that was discussed I'm going to touch up on. Uh, in regards to the labor that was mentioned, uh, we've everything that we've discussed here today, we've, we don't know how we fit into this model because it's a conventional way of growing it, whether in outdoors or in greenhouse. What we've done is we've disrupted the whole system, and now we don't know where we stand in BC, how we can get help. So for the labor part, uh, we don't have seasonal workers because we don't do planting in one season and then harvesting in another. We have just-in-time production, which is rare in agriculture, it just doesn't happen. What we do is we stagger our production over our actual racks, dedicating different tiers that are individually controlled to be able to grow for different life cycles. So at any given day, we seed and also harvest at the same time on the other end after a 14 to 21 day cycle based on the variety. As a result, we have skilled technicians in the field of controlled environment agriculture that we're building up and keeping. And this is, they're all Canadian here. And we don't have migrant workers coming in and, and taking sometimes the money back as capital flight as well. And in return, we're gonna start working with universities and getting these new generation of Canadians trained, because we have noticed that a lot, as Peter said, people don't want to come to the old way of, uh, of agriculture. They're looking for tech, they're looking for innovation, they're looking for challenges. And there is no shortage of brilliant minds in Canada. We designed a whole facility with Canadian engineers and architects and builders. And now new generation Canadians are working for us and with us to improve our systems. And they're very, very smart. And that's what we're well, when we started this whole project, we're wondering who can come in and work with us. And you'd be surprised to the brilliant minds that are out there looking for opportunities to come and help in ag, because there's always been traditionally a little bit of a gap uh, introducing technology into it, and we are doing that. And just to touch up on some of the other parts, R&D, we, we did R&D for years ourselves, and without the help of BC uh, government or federal. And so we don't know how that would happen and, and how we can get help for that. We designed the whole thing we grow on site, we pack on site, and we distribute, and we're putting a huge dent into the capital flight that happens for baby leafy greens. Over 90% of baby leafy greens across Canada is imported from the U.S., whether California or in the wintertime from Arizona. And so, so we're keeping all that here to be able to do that. Go ahead, Stu. So you're true entrepreneurs, and that entrepreneurial spirit is important. Evan, I see your hand up, uh, because I think you want to jump in on that very topic. Oh, well, this is, this is, again, it's one of these ones that's so important and so huge. So some high-level stats, 40% of the Canada's farmers are going to retire in the next uh, decade, and most of them don't have a succession plan. 
Currently, the sector faces a 24,000 person a year labor shortfall, and we're expecting the sector to need 63,000 more workers in the next 10 years. So there's this enormous gap between uh, what we've got in terms of trained workers and what we need in terms of workers. And the way the, the short term strategy has to be uh, our immigration. And Peter's completely right. We wouldn't have farms if we didn't have temporary foreign workers. But we also have to recognize that the nature of farming is changing and it's not as seasonal as it used to be. So we have to be offering more permanent pathways to immigration for uh, highly skilled farm laborers. It's just as simple as that. And there's a whole lot of immigration policy that needs to be wrapped up in our food security policy. Um, Again, Philip, you're right. We need to supercharge our ability to train students, but we also, and you know, Ricky and the Dean's Council, the AgVet Dean's Council has been great at this. We need to recognize that Peter is right, that the farmer of the future is just as likely to wear a, a lab coat as drive a tractor. And that means we've got to break down those silos between like engineering and computer science and ag science, uh, because we need, we need sort of a, an all hands on deck interdisciplinary approach to training this new kind of farmer that's as likely to be in a vertical farm as, as, as grow potatoes in Delta. And, and, and both are important. It's not an either or, it's, a, it's an and both scenario that we need to be mobilizing here. So, Sean, that is almost a perfect segue into our top question here on Slido, isn't it? Yeah, there's a good, uh, and it's a, it's a really current question as well from Karina Omali. Are we able to access the new federal budget on clean technology, environmental and climate innovations for BC agriculture? Who wants to jump in on that? Federica, you want to take the, the lead on this? Because I think that you play an important role in helping to advance you know, so many aspects of research uh, and the development of technology yeah. with what you're doing here at Genome BC. Well, for sure, um, from from a Genome Canada perspective, who operates at the federal level, um, and they are very obviously interested in understanding how to utilize the power of genomic to improve uh, agriculture, and in particularly climate smart agriculture and, and the new food systems. Um, we... Uh, they, uh, Genome Canada operates through a network of pan-Canadian centers. So of course, Genome BC is one of them here in the West. Um, we are independent, but we also, um, and so we received money from our province, but also through Genome Canada from the federal government. And so we uh, invest in uh, programs that help our ecosystem uh, develop this technology and then, of course, use this technology as well. And, and company uptake this technology. So we work all the way from upstream building capacity, our and beyond by partnering as well with the uh, with businesses to try and solve the you know the the, the more important challenges. Um, so I, I, I think that uh, our agency for sure plays uh, um, an important role in terms of of investing in this area. I just would like to make a point that when we talk about genomics, because I know Terra Mera is here and we said a little bit about it, and also Evan said when we talk about genomics, it's really a, it's, it's genomics is also a data science, and I think a lot of the next the future agriculture is also precision agriculture, which we haven't talked very much, but it's part of that, the regenerative agriculture. And it's, it, it is about really learning about data and it's about integrating also the data. So it's about, you know, making predictive and, and decisions to try and save on resources, on, on uh, minimizing the, the wastage and, um, and, and increasing the productivity at the same time. Um, and, and I think this is important important when we talk about BC because uh, and Canada in general, because having worked in food security abroad, I see that the, the, the data, the potential for data 
coordination in this space and using it effectively for precision agriculture um, is a little bit behind. And, and I think this is, uh, and, and Genome Canada is doing tremendous work to try and bring a, a coordination at the level of, of, of data, not only for agri-food, agri but also in health. But I think this is a, just an important point to make um, because we can have everything else that we've discussed here today uh, and nothing will actually advance without, uh, 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 without paying attention to this. So, so Peter, to your report, um, you talk about that there needs to be this push to create ag tech incubator programs or accelerators. How important is that? And then when you tie it into uh, coordinated effort by uh, educational uh, institutions at all levels, uh, Peter, uh, can you speak to that and then follow with you, Philip? Um, yeah. So listen, you know, I just want to go back to one of your questions earlier. You said, well, what's the answer as we were putting this out? Oh, is there a one sentence answer? Yeah, yeah. yeah no. no. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I mean, um, this is relatively not too long ago um, that we weren't even talking about this. Uh, and, and in recent times, um, you know, food security has become top of mind. And, um, and so I think we'll figure it out. We have to figure it out. And there's smart people, uh, you know, not just here, but in many other rooms that will. And when we did the report, we were looking at, you know, um, these centers that uh, could emerge around innovation, around ag tech, and uh, to do what, you know, what we saw in verticals, but also precision farming, I think, ex exactly. So, you know, we were kind of identifying that if we go forward, it's not a one or the other. It's a multiple number of things because we uh, realized that the declining food supply globally is a, a huge problem. Um, I mean, you look at Europe this summer. They had the hottest summer. And I don't know uh, who drinks champagne around here. I think a few of these panel members probably do. <laughs> but, uh, but, but the champagne region, um, in, in, for the first time in France, didn't grow great. Didn't grow great. Uh, and, and it just is now starting to show that you, you just can't rely on the same thing. And as we looked at this report, it was about disruption. It was about looking at doing things differently. How do we do it? Supporting the existing, uh, you know, conventional way, but also looking at new methods. And, and there's so much noise going on, not just here, but around the world on what ag tech is. And, and I think it, it, it is getting defined. It's getting defined by these guys here. It's getting defined by uh, other people as well. But, you know, um, you look at the Netherlands. You, you really, you know, we talked about the Netherlands and how they've, you know, kind of looked at growing food completely different. The USDA, the USDA actually now recognizes ag tech as a very viable uh, opportunity around food growth. And, you know, it's kind of one of the few uh, administrations that have actually said this is this is this is about the future. So um, it's you know I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I answered your question, but the question is 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 you know, quite quite a big one. Philip, <laughs> um, we're in the middle of something that uh, Dr. Thomas Homer Dixon calls the poly crisis. So these crises we are seeing. This is not a perfect storm. This is not a coincidence. These crises are converging and they, they're feeding on each other and they're gonna multiply. 
And, you know, the, Evan made the point about the need for multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary approaches, and we absolutely need that right now because all of these issues are interconnected. So climate change obviously affects food supply. Um, we saw the way in which the pandemic cascaded into the economy, uh, then into politics. Um, the atmospheric river here in BC in November 2021, uh, you know, devastation through the Fraser Valley, cut off our, our supply uh, chains. You mentioned uh, the the crisis in Europe, the the, the drought and the heat. That's going to continue to occur. So it's not an issue of local versus global. We have to do both. Uh, we have to relocalize as much as we can. So we're growing more. Our supply chains are shorter. But we also have to keep trade open, too, because there will be this variability across the world. Um, you know, uh, we've seen a significant increase in hunger just in the last few years. Uh, estimates last year were 828 million people in the world were malnourished, 45 to 50 countries, serious levels uh, of hunger. Um, that has cascading effects, uh, migration, social conflict, war, and this all feeds on each other. So this is a roundabout way of answering your question about the institutions. We have to look at all these problems and how they intersect and work on them kind of collectively because it's all part of um, you know, trying to secure our food supply as well as many, many other things as well. Um, but you know, to, to the question about whether this is possible, I looked up some stats. I think in 19, in the early 1900s in North America, households were spending 42% of their income on food. And in the years before the pandemic in North America, it had got down to around 10%. It's starting to rise again. So we've done this before. You know, we've seen these, these technological uh, revolutions before. Uh, Evans, I think, painted a very vivid picture of the scale of the challenge in front of us. But you've heard, uh, I think, tonight about the remarkable technological transformations that are available to us. And in combination with really good policy and kind of cultural change, I absolutely think we can get there. Karn. Um, so I just wanted to, to pick up on a couple of topics that were just threads here. So one is data and, and two is climate. So you know, I think I did a disservice a little earlier not talking enough about uh, what Terramara did. So, I, so first of all, I just want to preface that and say, uh, you know, as a company, not my, not many people actually know what Terramara does because the the guts of it is kind of will put you to sleep. It's very deep technology on um, machine learning, data science, computational chemistry, and we work together with Genome BC on 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 key, on, on key issues on how you start to. Um, uh, understand how we deal with some of these major problems that are affecting agriculture, like particular uh, pest pressures, for example. And one of the major issues we we hit as a company uh, was how do you get once you're innovating in this space of you know biological, organic, you know new, the kind of the new frontiers of what might work on a farm. How do you get the data back? And, and agriculture is just like, you know, we have this conversation in medicine. It's, it's a similar thing here in agriculture because the data sharing and data privacy is a huge issue. So we ran into all kinds of issues around testing out new things out in the field and being able to quickly iterate and figure out what's working, what's not, so we could train our machine learning and AI systems to be able to, to, to work better. We hit such a snag that we ended up having to develop our own systems here in Vancouver, which go and simulate 
um, conditions in, in a field, and we, we run it in our own systems to be able to train that. So I say that because we, we, as we start to push forward on solutions on things like regenerative agriculture and, and, and soil health, we will need to figure out how we understand and democratize solutions in agriculture by seeing what worked in one particular farm and how that can be applied to all farms to be able to meet the scale issues that, that Evan was talking about. So the second thing I wanted to talk about where data combines to, to climate, Terramara just spun out a new company called Miraterra, which is focused on soil diagnostics and soil health, applying our technologies to, towards that. And we're trying to now figure out how do we get these out in a way that it's economical to be able to share that data. So here's here's a way for you to for a farmer uh, or an agronomist or a you know a landowner to start getting your soil data right away. But the product on the front end has some you know um, says you know all the data is yours, but the aggregation of that data is you know for the uses of democratizing how you actually increase soil health that can be used either you know publicly or 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 in other ways and we're going to need to start figuring out how to deal with those those data issues even so, better so, so but i can't help but feel that okay you talk about uh soil data yeah uh what the soil composition is in Chilliwack yeah. is different than it is in the Okanagan and is different than it is in central Alberta. And everywhere you go, it's different. And so how important is it that we have a community of researchers and scientists working together to share this information so that when we're developing products, uh, that they work across multiple uh, geographic zones. It's so important. I mean, it's, you know, the, um, when we talk about precision agriculture, we actually forget about the soil. We think about inputs, um, you know, fertilizers, pesticides, and then maybe sometimes plants. But the soil is the foundation. It's the foundation for profitability on, on the farm. It's, a, it's the foundation for, um, you know, the nutrients that are coming into the food. And it's the foundation for climate. One of the things that we forget about is how important soil is to the climate um, so to the solution. We can't solve the climate crisis without focusing on driving some of the carbon that's in the atmosphere back into the soil. So there's about a trillion tons of anthropogenic human, human produced um, tons of, of carbon dioxide equivalent too much that we've put up into the atmosphere since the industrial revolution. 250 million, a quarter of full quarter of that is actually carbon that was released from the topsoil. So over the course of the last couple hundred years, that's that's carbon that's purely out of the topsoil, and and so yes, there's a problem, and you know that we have in the atmosphere and too much carbon, but we have an equivalent problem in in farming in in soil because when that so carbon is removed out of the soil, that actually deadens the soil. We're losing topsoil, we're losing water holding capacity, we're losing nutrient holding capacity. So for you know as we drive. Every you know, kilo, you know every a ton of carbon that we can drive into the ground, you actually can hold. Um, uh, God, I don't want to get the, the stats wrong, but a huge more amount of water into into the soil, and that that soil actually holds more nutrients. So you need to use less fertilizer. The farm is actually more productive. You're getting more nutrients back in. So the question is, how do you start 
pulling, I mean, this is the, the challenge of our generation, and this is what regenerative agriculture is, is really focusing on, is how do you get that carbon out of the atmosphere and use the magic of agriculture and plants and photosynthesis to get it back in the soil and keep it there. So I interviewed a uh, genetic scientist out of the United States a couple of years ago who said that he was working on seeds to help them uh, draw in microbes quicker to the roots that nibble away at the plant to help uh, accelerate growth of the stem or the roots of the plant to increase the carbon capture of the plant. This is where, you know, the interconnectedness of genetics and everything else plays such an important role. Federica? I think that I heard uh, interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary mentioned as part of just before in conversation. I think it's absolutely needed. So you going back to your first question, <laughs> is it possible? Yes, it's possible, but we have to bring to the table a number of stakeholders and a number of discipline and a number of expertise. This is not a problem that one single person on this panel can solve in isolation of each other. And I think it's only then that really um, it is possible to unlock that kind of leadership that you have asked about. All right. Thanks, Stu. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of discussions here on how to help the future uh, farmer and producer. I think um, there's a little bit of uh, elaboration we got to do on, on what we actually do and what vertical farming is. I just assumed a lot of people did know it uh, discussing no, this. They, they think it goes up the side of a building. <laughs> yeah. So what we do is... Um, we have, we do controlled environment agriculture, which is different than greenhouse. Greenhouses, we are where greenhouses were in the industry about 40, 50 years ago. So we have a completely enclosed warehouse that is inside a greenhouse with no sunlight, completely under LED lights, it's 25,000 LED lights. In hydroponics, we do not use soil, so people know. Mind you, traditional conventional agriculture and greenhouse will always be there for different crops, but for leafy greens, we are bringing it in indoors fully, so we do not have a lot of the problems that are being discussed. We are the future of farming as people label, we just brought it to the present, and are doing it and allocating it to baby leafy greens for now. And with that, we have precision agriculture, we have zero crop loss, which is a huge problem in agriculture, whether it's the inputs going in, or the carbon emission based on the actual plant that doesn't meet the specs for a particular retail. And, um, and with that, that plant, uh, the, the actual plant and root kind of microorganism balance that, that the previous professor was talking about, you, you were mentioning, that disruption or imbalance is permanent now in California because of that change in temperature. What has taken many, many years for it to balance out is now disrupted and you get proliferation of different viruses and fungus and bacteria and is ravaging the crops and the farms production, the producers of baby leafy greens and that is not changing. So we knew this about 10 years ago when we we're looking at the stats with, uh, with our partners and my brother and we said this is going to become a national security issue for food, food security. Let's do something about it and we build the facility to be able to start actually uh, filling that gap that is happening now for Western Canada and we're going to be building these across. So, so just to answer i think people don't realize that we control the full environment so we constantly clean dehumidify and cool the air we recycle all of the co2 that's used we do not have any co2 escape because we don't vent like greenhouses we just with computers figure out what the actual co2 amount has been used by the crops and and put in that delta that is controlled with 
with software that is constantly detecting what is missing and puts it in, including the water and the irrigation, the nutrients that are there and oxygen and everything else. Even in the actual racks, which we call towers and each level, it's scheduled as to what is going into a particular level when it's a arugula, a 50-50 mix or different varieties that we have, we actually, the computer knows that what on this day, based on the retail that is supposed to go out in about two to three weeks, what is going into that, that tray, what level, and the system automatically increases the airflow, changes the actual light schedule to accommodate. So it's very, very smart agriculture. And it's a little bit different than I think than most people are used to because there's a lot that we've put into this to improve Canadian agriculture. And here's the future of farming and the CEA knowledge that we're gathering will be applied to other products coming into the uh, vertical space soon. So I've been out and I've seen your uh, <laughs> facility. It is fantastic. But when I was there, you told me that you had to jump through so many hoops to be able to <laughs> produce or to build this facility on what is agricultural land. And it, I, I'm left going, okay, or thinking about the fact that we need to have the political will that's going to pull together all of these different elements that are going to allow us to be able to produce food in the way that we're talking about. You know, I can't also help but think, you know, we live in Canada. We have a short growing season if we're growing outside, 90 to 100 days if you're lucky. Like, so are we're forced to drive towards technology. But it's a combination of things. You know, Peter, you talked about we need to be having these conversations. How important is it that we have political leaders who understand how important the production of food in an environmentally sound manner is conducted. Yeah, uh, thanks, too. So let's get real for a minute. By 2030, over a million acres is going to be coming out of production in California. And we all know how much we rely on California. We need this. We really do. And... Um, it's been a, a, a journey. It started with the Food Security Task Force report. Um, I'm glad to see that your facility is up and running because one of the uh, regulation changes that the provincial government made was to allow vertical farms on the ALR, which is the right thing because it is farming, it is growing food. Uh, so we do need, we really do need the political push on, on solving these issues because I, 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 it really scares me when I look out on, on food production because we're just seeing um, less and less in the conventional way. We're going to need companies like yours uh, to step up, not just Leafy Greens, but you know, other opportunities. Um, and, and I think now um, the, the message is resonating. Uh, politically as well. I start, uh, you know, I, I think the evidence is now come before the politicians that are starting to realize we have to act and we have to act now. Um, and, uh, and, you know, this is the only way we're going to have some sort of sovereignty, food sovereignty. We're never going to be completely because we're going to rely on so many uh, other areas because of being in Canada. But we can certainly move the dial uh, towards, uh, you know, gaining some sovereignty back. Yeah, just a, a, a short point. Um, food systems worldwide contribute about a third of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, they're responsible for about 80% loss of biodiversity and consume about 70% of fresh water. So clearly something has to change and we see it's changing in California. 
Um, so policy is absolutely critical because we've got the technology, we've got the innovation, you've heard a lot about it, but without the policy, without good policy, we will go nowhere. And so we have to put a price on climate, on climate change. We have to put a price on biodiversity loss. We have to have good policy around animal welfare, around compensation, all of those issues. So it's an absolutely critical point. Thank you. Frederica, yes. <laughs> I just I loved what you just said, but it goes back to what we how we started this with the regenerative agriculture principle. That's what regenerative agriculture is, is when we are thinking about food security, productivity, economic profitability, but we do it by understanding the environment, protecting it, stewardship, respons social responsibility, the policy structure, the regulatory structures. So we're back where we started. It's key. <laughs> so, so talking about regenerative uh, agriculture, Evan, I'm going to come to you in, in a second because you and Lenore Newman wrote the book, you know, Dinner on Mars. And I was just out at your university talking to uh, Mike Dixon and his uh, uh, food and space program. You know, one of the things that he points out that if by learning what we have to do to grow food in space, you can't have any waste and you can't be running around getting new product to add into what you're doing. You're stuck with what you've got. So when, when we start thinking about the technology that's required to grow food in space, what can we learn from that that we can apply to what we're doing here, especially in Canada when we have this very short growing season? Evan. Well, well, uh, as Mike Dixon, you know, who you had interviewed says, and he's, we, we, we interviewed him for, for dinner on Mars and Mike's an old friend. He says, if, if you can grow a, you know, a, a, a iceberg lettuce on the moon, you can certainly grow it in a snowbank in Alaska. Um, and, and, you know, the, the discipline of thinking about producing a food system on the red planet, which is what Lenore and I imagined when we were locked in our bedrooms during COVID and trying to figure out what a project to work on, which resulted in our book. Um, uh, the discipline of trying to imagine a, a food system where every molecule of organic matter, every photon of sun's energy, is a, every milliliter of water is this precious resource, is a really good discipline. And what you do is you, you actually, by imagining being off Earth, you reinvent or rediscover the circularity of Earth, where you know the the tree drops its leaf, the leaf turns into soil, the soil gets picked up by the tree, and 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 on it goes in an endless cycle. And it's our industrial system that has broken those tidy cycles. Uh, it's that industrial system that we need to replumb. And the great irony of of Lenore's in my book, our thought experiment of how to make have dinner on Mars, was that by imagining being away from the Earth ecosystem, we reinvent or rediscover the logic of and the, and the necessity of the circularity of the Earth's ecosystems. So we need the systems um, like Byram and, and, and Up Vertical are doing where, where every resource is utilized. You don't just vent carbon dioxide that you're fertilizing a plant with out into the atmosphere. You pick, collect it again and you reuse it for the next generation. You don't just sort of spray water and let it evaporate or go wherever. You, 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 re, you circulate it. Um, and same with the organic matter. So it's, it's really as simple as the childhood lesson of nature work in cycles, folks, uh, and we have to redevelop that for the 21st century. So when I talked to Mike Dixon about this, I said, so does this mean that we can grow the food that we need in, in the far north? And he said, well, yes, we can, 
but can we afford it? And so as we move forward with these technological advances, he said, you know, it's still less expensive to fly the food in from Southern California to the high Arctic than it is to build out these systems. But we have to get to this point where we have to be producing food in quantity. Are we going to, do we also have to give the average person the idea that food is going to cost you more? And we have to accept that. I'm going to go around the panel. We're going to run out of time here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we have the vision of doing all of this. I think that the collective energy is here. But how do we do it so that the average person, you know, a or a family of, you know, four or five is, you know, struggling to make ends meet and buying food? Are we going to be able to produce it in a way that the average person can afford? Who wants to start? <laughs> Mara, because you think that you can you can do that. You you have to eat a whole bunch of salad by the time we're done. <laughs> but uh, but the answer is yes. It's just going to take some time for certain products to become feasible, whether through automation or different light technology. We have done it for baby leafy greens. We 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 are pricing it, and it's affordable for the consumer. We're replacing an existing market, which is fuel grown. Fuel grown supplies over 97% of the whole North American market for baby leafy greens com compared to greenhouse and vertical farming combined. So we decided with the Oppenheimer Group over five years ago to go after that market and displace it and provide clean, affordable food that lasts longer when it's grown indoors. So we are doing that and we are working on other products in our R&D facility to be able to do that. But it will take some time for other products to come in, but certain ones like berries and full head lettuce and other products are coming indoors and the R&D is being done for that. So by bringing that food indoors, are we then freeing up other land that could be used that will uh, provide a bounty in, in, in other crops? Peter, I cut you off there. Did I no, redirect I, you there? I, I, I was just going to, just uh, on the previous question, just add, yeah, do I think that uh, food will be affordable again one day? Absolutely. You know, uh, I think you were right. On the front end, a lot of technology, lots of expenses. Just look at, you know, these modern uh, devices that we use when they first came out, how much we paid, and then, you know, you wait a number of years. The one really good thing about this is called competition. It will come, it will, it will in scale. And when you have competition and scale coming in, I think we will be able to bring the, those costs down, and, but also coupled with good policy as well, where governments are also helping, uh, you know, lowering costs. For example, I'll, you know, um, um, just on the vertical, it's a farm, right? And uh, farmers today in BC, uh, we get supported uh, with uh, reduced rates from BC Hydro because we're a conventional farm. Um, you know, the energy costs, they're growing food. They should be exactly getting the same um, help as, as conventional farmers are because they're doing the same thing. They're just growing it a little differently. So there's some policy but I think as it scales up and the competitiveness comes in, yeah, I think we can get back to a affordable uh, cost for food. Federica, you're ready to. Oh, I, yes. <laughs> I guess, yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I, with regard to your question about uh, the shoot, 
uh, are people willing to pay more? Yes, probably people will have to pay more, but there's a whole concept of sustainability, I think, that we all have to embrace, not just the process of <laughs> around agriculture, perhaps even us, that's this whole, this whole re, uh, circular ecosystem that uh, um, Evan talked about, thinking from space, but the reality is we need to relearn how to live with our environment in a more sustainable way and without so much waste. And I, I think that's those principles uh, that have to come in as well for, yeah. So if we take a look at what you're doing in Terramara, in many ways, you're actually increasing yield and bringing down expenses. Right. And so are you bringing a net benefit that's going to make uh, crops more profitable for farmers? It, it absolutely is. So I think um, um, as we move to uh, the adoption of technology and the move to the the transformation to regenerative agriculture, it will bring down the cost, increase increase yields, increase the efficiency of 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 what we get out of a field. But there's like any technology, there's a there's an increase in costs before there's a decrease in costs. This so, is Federico was saying exactly. Yeah. So yeah. At, so once you get the economies of scale, um, so if you think about something similar like electric cars, so you know. It, there just isn't the economy of scale at the beginning to be able to compete with uh, with gas with combustion engines and so you know there needed to be some investment to de-risk people buying that to to bring the cost down and now as you're seeing the increase in uh, adoption, the the economies of scale and battery production and and um, you know infrastructure, it's starting to get to the point where it's starting to get, closer to in line with uh, with combustion. It's the same thing in agriculture. So I think this is particularly important on field, not to take away from ver ver vertical uh, at all. There's, you know, I think uh, vertical farming will have, you know, there's there there's certain key areas like, you know, um, uh, leafy greens and, and certain um, certain vegetables, but calories will need to come from um, from areas where you have you know, the energy of the sun. And I also think, you know, I mean, agriculture has been a, a net contributor to to climate change. We talked about the carbon released from from the soil, from from tilling practices and from other practices. But but this but soil agriculture is so important because we need to start um, covering up that land with plants that start being that engine to drive the carbon back out of the atmosphere into into the ground and as we do that yes there's there's a there's a cost in new you know types of technologies for example in regenerative agriculture you don't necessarily have one crop you don't have a monocrop you actually grow across the entire field and so in that field you have multiple crops that come out of it so you increase the amount of profit that's coming out but but now you need some different equipment to be able to, to harvest that. And so those are the things that we're going to have to think about. How do we arm um, growers with either increased food prices temporarily before they go down or some, some things that, you know, policy-wise policy like happened with electric cars to, to really supercharge the, the transition? Philip, and then one last question, which has to do with genetics and GMOs and so on, uh, because <laughs> it's a question that's come up. I'm going to go to Sean here. Philip. Well, ju just a huge endorsement of moving away from the monocultures to the multifunctional landscapes. I think that that's absolutely critical. But to your question, um, I, I agree that food prices will 
will come down. But I think the transition is going to be very rough. And I think in terms of policy, we really have to focus on the food insecure and supporting the food, in, uh, the food insecure through that process. I mean, our obesity crisis right now is a crisis of people who cannot afford, many of whom who cannot afford healthy food. Um, and the challenge, I think, over the next few years, as we get to that sort of equilibrium, is going to be make is to make sure that we have in place the supports for people who will face food insecurity locally and uh, internationally. And one other thing I'd say is we really need to work on food literacy through this period. You saw the polling at the beginning, which was interesting about people being prepared to pay more for organic food. But I just think much more emphasis on transparency and on traceability too. And there's a, there's a big consumer demand for that. And that would be very helpful in managing that transition. So, Sean, uh, our last question will come from Slido because I think it's important to address this because uh, food and genetics are so emotionally charged. Um, ask the question and then let's answer it. Okay. You got it. The yeah. question is, what is the current extent of GMO and genetically modified seed and food products in BC? What are the labeling requirements? And are there any restrictions on GMO with regards to food? Federica, I'll go to you well, first. I, I'm afraid that I've only been here two years. I don't know in BC. I can tell you what it is in Europe, but I don't know here. Well, tell us what it is in Europe. Like, what well, is the perception uh, about genetics and the production of food? Because as yeah. we've discussed tonight, we cannot do what we want to do if we do not incorporate advances in genetic science. Yeah. So I don't know, actually, I'm not up to date with the regulation currently in BC on GMOs, uh, where, where you know, I was in the UK and everything, of course, uh, outside of the UK as well, is properly labeled, there has to be labeled, there has to be transparency. Now, um, the question about GMOs, the perception, I feel this is a, it's been very debated. I think it's almost like I, I, I liken it a little bit to the same question that we are having right now when can we recreate, can we de-extinct an animal, maybe one of our favorite creatures or whatever. And, and people get all uh, you know upset with the ethics of it or what are we doing and we playing God and all of these things. But the reality of it is that what I was saying, how genomic, genomics is improving our variety is by understanding what portion of the genetic material, what markers, what gene is responsible for improving a particular trait. So it's a small modification to improve a trait in a very controlled uh, way to understand whether it will grow better in, in salinity, whether it will be better uh, tolerant to certain stressors, environmental stressors, whether it can be resistant to the pests that are ravaging uh, and destroying, uh, you know, some of our it's the same with the, the example of the honeybees, honeybees and what, what we've been doing in trying to protect uh, uh, making these uh, honeybees more resilient to the pest that was uh, destroying them and in turn destroying you know, the agricultural productivity. So I think that there are benefits and we are not recreating anything. We are making very small controlled uh, changes. Uh, this is, is the same with the, with the, with the, with the de-extinction. I mean, I, I know George Church would like to recreate a mammoth and all of this, uh, you know, everybody has probably heard about this, but the reality of it is what we can use is the knowledge of a genome now, and we can possibly understand what parts of genetic diversity we can reintroduce in animals that we are losing or going extinct. Um, but, but that's about all we can do, and that's a sort of a very beneficial. So 
I guess what I'm trying to say is a, it's a little bit shame, but this is the importance of communicating to the public and the social responsibility. Clearly, we didn't get it right. Uh, in the case of the GMO, clearly we didn't get it right during the pandemic, and clearly we're not getting it right. We're cloning mammoths, but but there is a, a question here about us reflecting on this and understanding at what point, uh, how can we do this better? It, it, it appears clear to me that we cannot uh, meet our objectives in food production if we do not, as you pointed out earlier, have precision science working in individual environments to ensure that the plants, the soil, the seeds, everything have the best opportunity to mature and make it to market. Karn. You know, um, thanks to, you know, just just going on Federica's, I, I don't know the stats here, but I, I have a real difficulty with this because I feel like this is a bit of a red herring that gets out in, in the world. So the question I liken genetic modification to a tool. So it's like a hammer. Like you can use a hammer to build someone a house or you can use a hammer to bash their head in. So is it the hammer that's bad or how you're using it that we should be looking at? So same with genetic modification. Genetic modification is, you know, you're looking at precision. We've been doing breeding for centuries. And what we're talking about with genetic modification tech is, is generally a much more precise breeding system. So in BC, for example, one of the advances was the Arctic apple. So now you had lots of waste from frostbite and lots of food waste, which contributes to, 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 to climate change. And the Arctic apple now is resistant to that. And, and it was, you know, a gene that was brought in that exists that was introduced in in a very precise way. So on the other hand, genetic modification oftentimes gets focused on um, you know, things like the, the modification of plants to be able to withstand toxic chemicals. So, so you know, for example, you can modify and say, okay, well, we'll spray this synthetic pesticide and these plants are not going to be, are going to be resistant to it. So there's been a, there's been a major use for that. It's actually also used in regenerative agriculture, but is the problem the genetic modification that, that, that people are upset at, or is it the use of the chemical? That's, you know, I, I think we need to get back to what is the use of it and what is the value of it, how, how we do that, not getting upset at tools. Like it's getting like getting upset at a hammer or a pencil. Well, I think it's clear that it's a very important element in our ability to ensure that we are uh, producing climate smart food. Mm -hmm. We're already over time, so I want to just quickly ask each of you for just a, uh, a quick closing thought. Evan, I'm going to start with you because you're the first uh, furthest out east, and you're furthest down the panel line here. <laughs> Let me start by saying thanks to, and I've learned a lot, and I, I've really enjoyed this experience. For me, my final remark would be that the industrial food system that we've relied on for the last 50, 60, 70 years is based on three assumptions, um, that the weather is stable and the environment fertile, uh, that, that energy costs are low, and that uh, every year it gets a little bit easier to trade things across borders. And uh, when those three conditions are met, then the long distance trade of commodities using monocultures, although it extracts a huge toll on the environment and workers and animal welfare, provided a hugely robust, uh, bountiful system. But those were 20th century assumptions. Those are not 21st century assumptions. We cannot assume trade is easy, that energy is cheap, and that the environment is, is fertile. 
and the kinds of systems we're talking about, which is a mixture of high-tech vertical plus soil-enhancing regenerative uh, that breaks supply chains and makes them much smaller and more autonomous. That's the sort of uh, logic that will win the day for the 21st century. Thank you. Thank you. Baran, closing thoughts. Um, I think, first of all, thanks, dude. This was a great discussion. Uh, I think vertical farming is an evolution of what Greenhouse has been doing and, and conventional before that. It's the first time in human history that we've come completely indoors and not relying on the elements anymore. And we've completely shunned out the, the sun and are growing under LED lights. And it's irrespective of what the climate is doing outside. So consistent, reliable food production is now possible. And since there's advancement in technology and including energy costs that are coming down with hydrogen fission in the future and, and fusion other items and production of LED lights and other items uh, such as racking and plastic trays that we design, build all of it our own and manufacture to reduce the cost will allow other products coming in. And uh, we're looking forward to help create that food stability in Canada, or at least combat a little bit of uh, the insecurity that happens, at least in our sector, maybe leafy greens and more. Wonderful. Thanks. Philip? Um, the assumptions that Evan mentioned are, uh, you know, we need to throw those out. Um, absolutely. And I guess the point I would make is just we need the humility to listen to people who are close to the land, including Indigenous people, you know, who have been stewarding the land for, for generations. And, you know, a lot of the language we use now and the things we think we've discovered are practices that people have deployed for generations. So just that, that humility to kind of listen to people who are close to the land and have that experience, I think, is very important. Karn. You know, I think there's a, a, a number of, of major lessons that um, we should learn out of uh, out of COVID, which was, you know, one, that we can't depend on the systems that we have expected for many years. They, you know, things could change at on the drop of a, of a dime and supply chain uh, chains may break, borders may close. Um, and we've got to start looking at how we are able to produce and you know sustain ourselves in the event of of any kind of situation be it weather or uh, related or, or 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 otherwise um and uh and second that we can adopt technology much faster than we ever thought we 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 could have before so how do we combine these two learnings and and really start thinking about how we apply that to agriculture i'm thrilled that this conversation is ha happening because you know this is this is literally what sustains us and the answer to a, a major part of, of the answer to how we, uh, uh, how, how we adapt to climate change and how we actually start producing solutions to climate change. It all happens in, you know, underneath our feet and um, you know, in the fields that, that, that grow our food. And too much, you know, in Canada, agriculture ministries across Canada and federally are the smallest, most forgotten ministries. It needs to be the most important thing that we're focusing on. And how do we start creating that, that, that discourse publicly and, you know, to, to, to really push, you know, policymakers and governments to start thinking as agriculture as central to our livelihood, our survival today into the future and a solution to the biggest problems that, that we face, you know, as a, as a province and a community and globally. Agreed. Federica, final thoughts? My final thoughts are following up uh, from this. Uh, um, if, I think it's extremely um, important that capital flows <laughs> 
into these areas, I believe that this is the time because of the climate change, because of the climate discussion. Clearly, everybody is working very hard to uh, understand the new approaches and to change completely the game and the cards on the table. Um, and so this is uh, a timely. I personally um, would love to see um, uh, uh, some different economic uh, value, value for our environment, value for our biodiversity, value because this will affect many of the conversation we've been having today. So a different way to really value what's important to us. Uh, so a different, uh, complete economic uh, way of of uh, and taking into account account really in our GDP the natural the capital, frankly. And Peter, final thoughts from you. Um, yeah. Thanks to thanks for putting this together. You know, it's bloody about time we start talking about this because this is so critical. You know, it kind of started with your question, can BC be a leader? Well, I'll tell you, we can't, not one group can do it themselves. We need academia, we need politicians for good policy, and we need the people who grow the food all aligned and working together. So as you started with the first question, yes, we can lead, but we need a real alignment between all of these groups. That's the only way we're gonna solve this. That is the only way that we're gonna solve this. Thank you all for your time, your brilliant insights uh, this evening. We went way over time, but I, I can't stop because it, it is such an important and invigorating uh, conversation. And to all of you who joined us online, Thank you very much. And of course, one last shout out to our sponsors. Uh, without them, we wouldn't have been able to do this. So thank you to them. Their names have been flashing across the screen all night. So I don't need to mention them all, except for the fact that I really want to thank Genome BC and Genome Canada for making tonight possible. Thank you. <laughs>